Get your Bibles out this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 12. The children are being dismissed. We've been preaching our way through Matthew chapter 12. We're in verse 22 today. Lots of powerful messages in this chapter. The Holy Spirit wanted us to camp out here for a while, and we're doing just that. Uh, I feel like the Scripture is like an orange, and you can squeeze all the juice out of it. Amen. It's, it's good to, to the taste, and it's nourishing to the body. So Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. I'm going to read through verse 26 this morning, going to be the verses that we cover. Let's just bow our heads and thank the Lord for the word and thank him that we could be here together today. Father, we thank you today for being able to come and assemble together as the people of God on the Lord's day. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you move in our midst and you touched us and you, you visited us during worship, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we prepared our hearts and minds to receive the word today. And Lord, I pray that the word penetrates our intellect and gets through the barriers of our flesh and gets right into our hearts, into our spirits today. Father, let the word find good ground in our hearts so that it can produce fruit in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he he healed him. So the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And we stop there this week as we extract all the juice out of what's in those verses. We start off here, Jesus in chapter 12, according to Matthew, he's moving, he's uh, doing the Father's will, and you know, if you look at the tempo of Jesus' ministry, granted it was a three-year ministry, he did all these miracles, all these healings, he, he testified, he, he, he does everything the Father has him to do in just three years. And I think about what most of us accomplish in three years. If it wasn't for putting on weight, I wouldn't accomplish much in three years. <laughs> but the tempo of Jesus' ministry suggests that he's what we would call today a multitasker. Look at all that he can do simultaneously. He's just, he's just you know, moving through the crowds. He's going from place to place. And as he's doing that, he's grooming his disciples. He's raising up uh, what would be 11 men that would be pillars in the early church that would turn the world upside down. He's sparring with the religious leaders. He's interacting with the multitudes. He's doing signs, wonders, and miracles everywhere he goes. Jesus was busy doing the Father's business. And he was a multitasker, and he could do more than one thing at a time. He had a short window to make an impact, and so do we. 
So we should use our time wisely. We should multitask. We should be about the Father's business. Verse 22 shows Jesus is doing his thing, and someone is brought to him who's afflicted by the demonic realm. Now, when we see uh, this situation here, Jesus is going on his way, and they bring this guy to him. Listen to verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed. Not only demon-possessed, but blind and mute. And in the same sentence, uh, on the other side, you know, of this man being brought into his presence, simply it says, he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Look at what happens here. He's on his way. He's doing his thing. But now this man is brought in front of him. And what I want you to see here is this is a clash between two kingdoms. This is a clash between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And a person afflicted by the darkness is brought right into the presence of God's only begotten son. Light against darkness. Boom, it's a clash. It's a head-on collision. And I want you to understand, many times as children of the light, we will have to clash with the darkness. Now, D Jesus is faced with this man, and I want you to notice, he's not apprehensive, he's not anxious, he's not even cautious about facing the kingdom of darkness. He's not, you know, concerned in the least because he knows the kingdom of God is way above and way beyond anything the darkness has to show. Many times people, uh, even Christians, depict that there's this struggle between darkness and light, that, you know, the kingdom of darkness is fighting with the kingdom of God, and it's an epic struggle, and we're not quite sure who's going to win. In the East, they have the yin and yang symbol, darkness against light, and they're both equal images, uh, you know, kind of intertwined, facing off together. Nothing could be further from the truth. The kingdom of darkness today, I want to I tell you something, is defeated. The enemy is under our feet. There's no epic struggle. There's no, yes, there's a war. Yes, there's a conflict. But the battle is the Lord's and the battle is won. And when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he wasn't just being dramatic. He was serious about that. He descended into hell. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. He put his foot on the enemy's neck and declared victory, breaking the power of sin. So when this demonic person and this demonic entity is brought before Jesus, he's not concerned at all. You know, honestly, for him, this was light work. Light work. Pastor Mike, it was harder to deal with the religious elites. It was more difficult to deal with stubborn religious people than it was to deal with devils. That'll tell you something about stubborn religious people, amen. Jesus like, if I had a choice, I'll deal with the devils, thanks. And he's not concerned. He's not taken back. He's not cautious. This is light work for him. You know, and I want you to understand, as children of God, we should model Christ in this, not fearing the darkness one bit. Too many of us are concerned, what's the devil doing? What's the devil up to? What's going on? Where's the Antichrist? Is he behind the bush? Should I find him? I, I can't sleep at night. Stop that. The darkness is defeated. The enemy is under our feet. You and I shouldn't be scared of the devil, shouldn't be scared of demons. Now, we shouldn't go looking for demons. Some people, you know, they're looking for the devil everywhere they can find. Now, I've never went looking for the, for the devil. I got other things to do. Maybe you have that amount of free time on your hands. But, 
you know, we don't have to look for the devil. And every time I've clashed with the devil, the, the spirit of God would always rise up in me, whether, you know, it's conflicting demonic things, people dealing with oppression or possession. Throughout my ministry, every time I've clashed with that kingdom, the spirit of God would raise up in me, and it was not even a struggle at all. In Jesus' name, there was authority there to put down the enemy. You know, we sing these songs, I have the authority Jesus has given me. Do we really believe that? Because there's some Christians who are scared of the devil. Listen, a Christian that's scared of the devil is like a squirrel that's afraid of heights. You see squirrels on the ground, man, that tree, I want to get those nuts up there, but I'm, a, I'm scared it's too high, it's like 30 feet. You see the size of that oak? No, squirrels aren't afraid of heights. Watch a squirrel sometime. I've watched a lot of them. They just, uh, they'll leap, uh, they'll climb onto little tiny branches, 60 feet in the air, and just jump to, and I've seen them fall. I've seen them fall 30 feet and bounce off the ground. They spend a lot of time in trees. They're not scared. And that's the way we should be when it comes to dealing with the darkness. The children of God should not be afraid of the dark. And all the scared people aren't clapping. But we need to understand our authority that we have and that for Jesus, this clash between kingdoms was light work. It was not, it was no sweat for him. He wasn't cautious. He wasn't, you know, and he ministers to the demon-possessed man. And this guy is blind and he's mute. Now, I want you to see what a sad condition this guy was in. This is a really tough place for this guy to be. You know, he's, he's a creation of God. He's, he's someone made in the image of God, yet he's blind. He's unable to speak. That's the physiological defects he's dealing with. Then he's violated inwardly by an unholy occupying force. This guy was afflicted body, soul, and spirit. It was about as bad as it could get. I can't talk, I can't see, and I'm possessed. And you thought you were having a bad day because we had to brush a little snow off of our windshields. You know, this guy was in a situation where his only hope was God. The doctors couldn't do anything about this. The, the, the religious people, you know, were, were just busy, you know, ignoring him or condemning him or trying to figure out whose fault it was that he was in this condition. But Jesus, you know, comes face to face with him, afflicted body, soul, and spirit, and he has the answer to his dilemma. Now, notice how Jesus handles the situation. As Christians clashing with the darkness, we can learn a lot here. He doesn't speak to the devil. He doesn't try to negotiate with the demon. He doesn't expose any great sin that the man has committed. He doesn't even demand public repentance from the man. He doesn't browbeat him or make him promise to do anything. He simply heals him. See, when you have spiritual power and you have spiritual authority and you're confident in who you are in Christ, you don't need to play the blame game when it comes to why a person is in a situation. I've heard Christians say, well, you didn't get healed because you didn't have enough faith or you didn't get healed because you sinned too much. Or, Jesus didn't do any of that with this. He didn't be like, you know, uh, you, you know, what about that sin? Are you going gonna to change if I deliver you? No, he didn't make a deal with the guy. He didn't make a deal with the devil. He just healed him in Jesus' name and released him from the bondage that was in his life. Don't you love Jesus? 
that he just meets us where we're at. He meets our need. There's no condemnation. There's no, you know, exposing the man. You're like this because you did that. There's no demand. Well, you better change. Do I have your word? Do I have a promise? No, he just comes face to face with the darkness and the light in him drives the darkness out. And the man is completely delivered, body, soul, and spirit. He's inwardly healed, and he's outwardly healed. He was blind, and now he sees, amen? He was mute, and now he speaks. He was oppressed and possessed, but now he's free. See, that's what the Lord does when he heals us when he touches us, when he comes through for us, when he breaks through into our situation. He completely delivers us. You know, it's not partial. It's not maybe someday. It's not I'll give you half now, make a down payment. No, complete deliverance. That's what's available to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. Where you're struggling, where you're stuck, where you're in bondage, where you're oppressed, where you're struggling with sin, God has complete deliverance for you today if you'll take it by faith. Come on, give him praise this morning. Amen. I'm so glad we serve a God who has the power. Amen. Now, the, the, the text continues here with the multitude's response in verse 23. And the response of the multitudes here, remember there's a large crowd following Jesus. The, the religious people went away to plot to kill him. Why? Because he healed a man on the Sabbath. Amen. So the crowd that's following him, this is the response from the crowd. And it's both awesome and astute. Listen to what they say in verse 23. Could this be the son of David? Now, what they're really saying here when they say, could this be the son of David? Are, are, they're saying, is this the Messiah? You see, every Jew knew that the Messiah would come through the line of King David because they knew the scriptures and they knew the prophetic promises and they knew where Messiah was supposed to come from. So when, you know, when they bring David's name into the equation, could this be the son of David? What they're really saying, is this the Messiah? What an astute observation here. Not a good man, not a teacher, not a prophet. They watch the way he operates. They watch the way he uses his spiritual authority. They watch his confidence and his demeanor and his strength, and they say, could this be the promised Messiah? Now, uh, to us, you know, on the other side of the cross and knowing Scripture and having a relationship with Jesus, at this point, we know who he is, amen? but they didn't know who he is, and there was a lot of speculation, but they come to this conclusion. Now, amazingly, this is a more astute observation than the religious leaders. You know, uh, the religious leaders were about to say who they think he is, but the crowd thinks this just may be the Messiah we've been waiting for. I want, you to see, I want you to see the difference between, you know, what the religious leaders say and what the crowd says. Because nine times out of ten, you look at the multitudes as they're simpletons. They don't have much understanding. They're there for the show. And, you know, the, the other group, well, they're smart. They're, they're, they're schooled in the scriptures. They know the Old Testament. They know the prophetic promises. Yet we have one group that's not supposed to be so sharp coming to the right conclusion. And the other group is out in left field. Now, I want to say something about that. Never underestimate the perception of the common man. I want to say it again. Never underestimate the perception of the common man. Listen to me. The elites 
the experts and the intellectual giants get it wrong all the time. All the time. Uh, just Pastor Mike is excited about this. Because, you know, well, we're the experts, we're the elites, we're the all-knowing know-it-alls. You just listen to us and be quiet because you're not as smart as we are. But the truth is, if you study history, if you look at history, you realize many times it's the common man that perceives what's going on when the elites are out in left field. And look, if you, if you can't make the leap between what I'm saying and what's going on all around us for the last two years... The smarty pants have been wrong about everything. And in their hubris and their arrogance, they still demand we listen to them without questioning. My God. So here we are. The crowd of simpletons says, well, you know what? This could be Messiah. He, he's acting like, you know, what, what the prophet said. He's doing what the prophet said. This could be the Messiah, the son of David. Now, the Pharisees, in verse 24, they, this is the conclusion of the elites. Now, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Were they right? Could they be any more wrong? Don't get quiet on me now. Jesus didn't have a devil. Jesus was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Their conclusion couldn't be any more wrong about who he was. Yet they were the intellectual giants, the elites, and they got it wrong. The common man saw that Jesus had all the attributes of the Messiah, but the religious people, you know, they're saying, no, he's working with the devil. He's possessed by the devil. The, the, the signs, wonders, and miracles that he does, they're of the devil. Now, I'm going to explore this a little bit here in just a minute. The, the religious elites had a problem with Jesus, and here was the problem. Jesus was doing signs, wonders, and miracles, and he was making them look spiritually impotent. He was doing what they should have been doing that they didn't have the spiritual juice to do. And so the, the long and the short of it is he was making them look bad. Do you know the elites and the, the smart people don't like it when they're made to look bad? And they'll get really nasty if their ignorance is exposed or if, you know, their wrong conclusions are exposed. And they get very vitriolic when the shroud is pulled off and we see what's behind there is not discerning and doesn't have wisdom and is not what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the Wizard of Oz, if you've ever seen that. When they pull back the curtain, you know, I am the great and powerful Oz. No, you're just an old dude with a machine just going... Come on, don't look at me like you didn't see the Wizard of Oz. Remember that? When, when they pulled the curtain back? Hmm. Well, this guy, you know, you know uh, he, he's not the Messiah. He's not the son of David. He's not the one. And these guys knew the Old Testament prophecies. He's doing everything that, you know, he was supposed to do. But their conclusion is, no, it's not him. In fact, they say he's working with or for the devil, however you want to, you know, interpret that. And they say that the, the spiritual authority that he's exercising is by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now, it's... It's a weird, snowy morning on Sunday. Let's talk about the devil a little bit. Who is Beelzebub? So 
if you study the origin and the roots of this demonic entity called Beelzebub, you're going to find that his name is derived from a Philistine, little g, god, worshipped in Ekron. So the Philistines constructed uh, this idol, this god, and the demonic force that was behind it was named Beelzebub. Uh, He is depicted by various idols and icons as as a flying devil. And if you see pictures, I'm not asking you to Google it or look, but if you look at it, I mean, it's almost disturbing spiritual when you see the images that they've made of this demonic entity, a flying devil. It's bad enough that devils move around, now they're flying. So... (laughs) His existence was recognized by the Abrahamic religions where he was seen as a high-ranking ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebub was known for, listen, spreading belief in false gods as well as fanning the flames of war and of lust. I would say Beelzebub is quite active in our culture, in our world right now, amen, fanning the flames of war and of lust like never before, stirring up belief in false gods. And this is who they accused Jesus of being. It wasn't that they just said he is a, a demon. They say that in other places. But they named the demon, and he's a high-ranking, wicked, ugly demon with the attributes that I just described to you. There again, their analysis of who he is could not be more wrong. Never underestimate the perception of the common man. Many times, God reveals himself to the simple ones because the others have too much pride to hear the voice of truth. In these last days, God will illuminate and display his glory in simple, ordinary people. Don't look to the elites for your salvation. Don't look to the elites to guide you. Look to Jesus and those who are his godly servants to have the word of the Lord in any situation. So we get a little lesson on who Beelzebub is, and when we see the parameters of who Beelzebub is, we realize what an insulting thing it is to accuse Jesus of being him. Now, the Antichrist spirit is in operation here. Well, you could say, well, you know, that's kind of obvious. He's Christ, and they are opposing him. So, yeah, that's the Antichrist spirit. But the spirit of Antichrist is in operation in this situation and in the earth today. And I want to tell you something about the Antichrist spirit. It demonizes what it can't explain away or contend with. Listen to me. That Antichrist spirit, well, you know, that, that, that church stuff, that Holy Ghost stuff, that power of God stuff, that God healing, that, that, that's not true. That's this or that's that or it's their imagination or it's group hysteria, but it's not the power of God. And there is no power in Jesus and Jesus doesn't heal and Jesus doesn't set captives free. And understand that's the Antichrist spirit. And the Antichrist spirit is in operation all around us. We see it in the political arena. We see it in the perverse secular media. We see it in Christian circles that categorically label biblical expressions of the Holy Spirit as the works of the devil. What is that? When a minister says, if you operate in this gift here that's obviously in the Bible, that's a work of the devil. That's an Antichrist spirit. That's a religious spirit. The Bible says when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're on thin, thin ice. I would be very careful calling what the Bible says is a biblical expression of the Holy Spirit, the work of the devil. That's thin ice. 
I would rather say nothing. I would rather say, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I want to call things that the, the Scripture describes and say, well, that's not for today. It's the work of the devil. God doesn't do this and God doesn't do that. And let's talk about the doctrine of cessation that doesn't exist in the Bible. You have no Scriptures for it. I don't mean to get all theological on you, but, you know, here we are. The elites are wrong. They accuse him of being filled with Beelzebub. Uh, this Antichrist spirit is in operation here, the opposition to Jesus himself and to the kingdom of God. The Antichrist spirit will demonize and marginalize and aggressively try to silence or cancel anything and everything that has to do with the kingdom of God. It's expressed in the cancel culture that we live in right now, that everything that has to do with righteousness, with biblical Christianity, with what God intended man to be, with gender, with marriage, in every area is under attack by the Antichrist spirit. Because why? They can't contend with it. They can't explain it away, so they have to discredit it, they have to marginalize it, and they have to cancel it. And I have news for the kingdom of darkness today. The kingdom of God will not be canceled by the opinions of men. Amen. We will not be canceled. Amen. So verse 25 and 26, we continue with the unfolding of events here. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus does something he does every once in a while here, and I always find it humorous when he does. It says, but Jesus knew their thoughts. Uh-oh. Did you ever feel like when you were a kid and you were trying to pull the wool over on your parents' eyes that they're reading my mind? They know what I'm up to. Why did you feel that way? Two reasons. One, because they did, and two, because you weren't very slick. It says, now the... <laughs> The Pharisees, this fellow cast out damn, by Beelzebub. And Jesus in 25 says, he knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house, listen to that, kingdom, city, house, divided against itself will not stand. So what happens here is that Jesus does what he does. He says what he says. The darkness opposes him. And then when they're not getting any traction with that, they're just thinking in their heads something and Jesus reads their thoughts. You say, how did Jesus do that? By the divine attribute of his omniscience. Remember, he was fully God and fully man. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He had the divine attribute of omniscience. What does that mean? He knows everything. He knows everything. You can't fool him. You can't pull the wool all over his eyes. You can't do something, you know, behind his back. These guys are thinking to themselves, and Jesus reads their thoughts. You know, and, and, and you know what? You would like to think if you're arguing with someone and they're reading your thoughts and discerning your intentions, he speaks to the unspoken thoughts of his critics. You'd think they'd stop arguing with him. If somebody was reading my thoughts or saying what I was about to say before I said it, I think that would spook me a little bit. Either I would, you know, think there, you know, there's something unnatural about them or the spirit of God is upon them. You know, these guys come into conflict with him. He begins to speak to their unspoken thoughts and still they continue to argue with him. You know, you would think that they would stop and you say, well, why didn't they stop? And I'll tell you why. It was because of the hardness of their hearts. 
Pastor Mike, their hearts were so hard, they didn't care who was right, what was right, if he was Messiah or not. They just wanted to win the argument because they were the elites. They were the all-knowing know-it-alls. And how dare you challenge us or make us look bad, Jesus? We're going to argue with you even if we know we're wrong. Have you ever been in an argument and halfway through you realize you're wrong? Come on, anyone, anyone married? Halfway through the argument, you know you're wrong. And what do you do? You keep arguing like a desperate lawyer with a case he can't win, constructing straw man arguments and, other, and, and tangents and misdirection. I just got to create reasonable doubt. And I can pull this one out. I can't. <laughs> There's been times in my marriage where, you know, we're arguing about something and she's right, and I'm like, oh, let's see, let's see how I can get out of this. <laughs> one time, my wife was in an argument with one of our friends, and a dear friend we went to Bible school with. I was his best man. He's since passed away now. But they were arguing, and it was just playful sparring back and forth. But I'm listening to him, and he was articulate, and he was persistent, and he was beating her in the argument, and finally she just said, shut up, Doug. <laughs> she won the argument. We weren't married then. you think I would have learned something from that. But, you know, why do we argue when we know we're wrong? Because our hearts are hard. Because we would rather be, win the argument than be right. We would rather, you know, come out on top than just admit, I was wrong. These guys knew they were wrong. These guys knew the multitudes were probably right, but yet they were so offended by Jesus that he made them look as small as they were that they argued with him out of a hard heart. Somebody told me when I was a young Christian mentoring me, they said, son, when you're wrong, be wrong. That's good advice. Married people, when you're wrong, be wrong. Try this, say, I'm sorry. Come on, somebody try it. They don't want him. So here's Jesus face to face with the demonic realm. They accuse him of being a devil himself. They, they spar with him. He speaks to them. He knows their thoughts. Still, they continue to dig their feet in. And Jesus' response is, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Now, there, there's a powerful principle there. Uh, when Jesus rebuts their accusation, hey, you, you're working with Beelzebub. He comes to them and, he, you know, he says, you guys are basically saying, I'm, I'm casting out demons because I'm aligned with the prince of devils. And understand something. There is a necessity for unity in any kingdom if it's to stand. Now, Jesus brings up subtly the issue of unity here. He says every kingdom, every city, every house. Listen to how that breaks down. Kingdom, city, house, right down to our level. Marriages can't stand without unity. Families can't stand without unity. Churches can't stand without unity. Communities, states, nations cannot stand without unity. What destroys unity? The answer is right in our text. The answer is division. Look what he says, a kingdom divided against. It's division that destroys unity that doesn't allow a kingdom to stand. And every city or house divided. I want you to see that two times. Divided, division. Division is a plague within any institution that threatens its existence. Division is a plague within the body of Christ that must be healed at all costs. 
Now, I'm not saying we compromise with those who are, in, you know, who are not being biblical. I'm not saying we compromise with those who are, who are not being godly, but we need to have unity within the true body of Christ. Everyone that is born again, whose name is in the Lamb's book of life, I don't care what denomination, I don't care what church, I don't care, you know, if they speak in tongues or not. If they are born again and a child of God and in the Lamb's book of life, we need to have unity with them because they're our brother or our sister. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. They don't have the same theology. They don't have the, the same eschatology as us. They believe in the post-trib, and we believe in the pre-trib. And are, are we really going to divide ourselves over non-essentials? Are we really going to fragment the body of Christ over non-essentials? Whether it's pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, it's going to be pan-trib because it's all going to pan out in the end, amen? Some people are just going to get there earlier than they thought. When the pre-trib rapture takes place, all the people who thought it was post-trib, I'm going to go, ha, you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe on the way up if I see one of them, you're wrong. You should go last. Just pray for me. Division destroys unity, and Jesus points it out. The simple, logical fact is, guys, that if Satan cast out Satan... He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? You and I as believers need to preserve the unity that Jesus gave us in the body of Christ. We need to, against, we need to war against division as if it was our most vicious enemy because it is. I want to close down, and you know when a preacher says that, it could be ours, but I want to close down with this story from World War II. During World War II, Hitler commanded all religious groups within Germany to unite so that he could more easily control them. Among the Brethren Assemblies, a denomination in Germany, half complied and half refused. Those who complied with the, the mandate from Hitler had a much easier time in wartime Germany. Those who did not faced harsh persecution, and in almost every family that resisted, someone in that family died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, within the Brethren denomination, there were deep-rooted feelings of bitterness between the groups, and it ran deep, and there was a lot of tension. Finally, they decided that the situation had to be healed if they were to maintain, uh, the, just the, the, the maintain their semblance together because there was so much friction. So leaders from both groups came together for a quiet retreat for several days. Each person spent time in prayer, examining their own heart in light of God's commands in Jesus Christ. Finally, they came together. Francis Schaeffer, the great existential theologian, was told of the incident, and he asked a friend who was actually there, what did you do then? We were just one, he replied. As we confessed our hostility, our bitterness towards each other, the Holy Spirit created a unity among us that filled our hearts with love and dissolved our hate. When love prevails among believers, especially in times of strong disagreement, Division will be destroyed, unity will pre be preserved, and the world will see the truest mark of Christianity, and that's love. What destroys unity? It's love. 
Why do I argue when I know that I'm wrong? My love has faded. It's more important to be, uh, win the argument than to be right. It's more important to come out on top than to admit that you're wrong. Look at this situation here. I mean, this is about as real as it gets. People literally died because they took the right stand. And others within the denomination were cowardly and sided with, they capitulated to the Nazis. How could you not have an attitude toward a person like that? Well, you suffered and they skated through. That's as real as it gets. But notice what healed it is the only thing that can heal it. What healed their division and allowed them to have unity again was love. We need to love one another as Christ loved the church. We need to overlook others' flaws and failures and missteps, even if they're not sorry. It never says here in the illustration that the other side repented and said they were wrong and asked for forgiveness. It's just that God dealt with everybody's hearts on both sides of the fence. We need unity in the body of Christ. Whatever divides full gospel center has to go. We need to be one before the Lord so the power of God can be poured out in this place. We should never divide ourselves over non-essentials. But we should, with love, preserve the unity that's been given to us in Christ. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you today for the word of God. We thank you for Matthew 12. We thank you that Jesus has given us a beautiful template to follow when we interact with the kingdom of darkness. We realize that when we are forcefully advancing the kingdom as Jesus was, we will meet resistance. And when we do, I pray that every ounce of fear would be drained from us and that we would have the boldness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. The righteous are bold as lions, but the wicked flee when no man pursues. We are the righteous because of the blood, so help us to act like it, to use our spiritual authority, to preserve unity, to drive division out of our homes, out of our churches, out of our communities, out of our nation. And Father, allow love to mark the body of Christ. It's one of the greatest proofs that we're your disciples, that we're your children. I pray that the world would see the love here and they would be drawn to the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise this morning. Amen.